Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 45, 1 Samuel chapters 30 and 31, the end of our study of the first book of Samuel. Well, today we're going to conclude the book of 1 Samuel. But unlike most times when we conclude a book and begin the next one, we really won't feel that much of a change. The book of 2 Samuel is nothing more than a point at which the original quite large Samuel scroll was divided into two for the sake of convenience. Thus, it's really going to feel more like uh, turning the page to another chapter than transitioning to another book. Now, as we closed last time, David and his men were only just returning from rescuing their kidnapped families from the Amalekites. Amalek had come to Ziklag, the village that King Achish of Philistine Gath had graciously assigned to David. And Amalek attacked the weakest and most vulnerable when David and his men left for battle. Let, let's review that very briefly. The Philistines decided to again try to establish territorial dominance over Israel, especially northern Israel. And thus the armies of the five Philistine kings that represented the bulk of the Philistine population honored their alliance and agreed to assemble at Afik on the northern edge of Philistine-controlled territory for war against King Saul. Now since David had established an, an informal treaty with King Achish and was being allowed to live in Achish's kingdom, it was a given that David's private army of 600 would join in the battle as part of Achish's contingency. But this was an awkward situation to say the least. David would be fighting alongside Philistines against his own people, the Israelites. Now, interestingly, while David expressed no reservations about fighting the army of Israel, four of the Philistine lords did. They didn't trust David. They didn't trust his motives. They reckoned that once the battle started, David and his men would turn against the Philistines and aid their natural countrymen. Now, whether that treason would have been the result of pangs of guilt as the war proceeded or it was a planned deception all along, they didn't know. But it really didn't matter because the result would be the same. David and his men were dismissed from the war assembly of the Philistines and sent back home to Ziklag, but not before David defended himself and reaffirmed his loyalty to Achish and pled to be able to participate in the coming battle. His pleas were rejected as a, as a political impossibility. Well, after a three days journey, David and his men arrived home to find their village abandoned and leveled. Amalek had taken the women and children and all things of value and destroyed the remainder. You know, it's an interesting fact of history that Amalek 
in their very first dealing with Israel, attacked the rear of the Exodus column that was marching out of Egypt, where the elderly, the sick, the lame, the pregnant women, the young children took their place. And here in this chapter, we find that Amalek waited until the men of the village were gone and then came and attacked the women, the children, the sick and the lame, and the elderly. So it is a characteristic of Amalek, and by extension, the spirit of Amalek, to go after the most vulnerable of God's people when they least expect it. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38. I want to show you something. Ezekiel chapter 38. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 692. Ezekiel chapter 38. We're going to start reading at verse 1. The word of Adonai came to me. Human being, turn your face towards Gog and the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshech and Tuval, and prophesy against him. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tuval. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with all your all of your army, your horses, horsemen, all completely equipped. A great horde with breastplates and shields, all wielding swords. Paras, Ethiopia, and Put are with them, all with breastplates and helmets. Gomer, with all of its troops, the house of Togarma, in the far reaches of the north, with all its troops. Many peoples are with you. Prepare yourself, get ready, you and your crowd gathered around you and take charge of them. After many days have passed, you will be mustered for service. In later years, you will invade the land, which has been brought back from the sword, gathered out of many people, the mountains of Israel. They have been lying in ruins for a long time, but now Israel has been extracted from the peoples, and all of them are living there securely. You will come up like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many other peoples with you. Adonai Elohim says when that day comes, thoughts will well up in your mind and you will devise a sinister scheme. You will say, I am going to invade this land of unwalled villages. I will take by surprise these people who are at peace, living securely, all in places without walls, bars, and gates. The spirit of Amalek, you see, is alive and well. And its very nature is to attack Israel when they think all is well. Or when they've been weakened and they're very vulnerable. 
In the last days, the Lord will use this characteristic to lure the nations who harbor the spirit of Amalek into their destruction. Well, after David's men caught up to the Amalekite marauders and defeated them, thus freeing their families, recouping their stolen possessions, they backtracked on the road home to Ziklag. And they stopped along the way to pick up those 200 warriors that they had left behind at the Wadi Beshur. And of the 600 total warriors at David's disposal, these 200 had become too exhausted to continue their pursuit of Amalek, so they were left at the Wadi to recuperate. It was the remaining 400 who found the Amalekites and fought them. Let's pick up our story there. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. That is page 332 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 332. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to start reading at verse 21. David came to where the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him whom they had let stay at the Wadi Bashur. They came out to meet David and the people with him and when David approached them he greeted them. But some of the men who had gone with David were evil men, scoundrels, and they said, they didn't go with us, so we're not giving them any of the property we've recovered. Each man can take his wife, his children, leave. Then David said, no, my brothers, don't do this with the goods Adonai has given us. He protected us. He handed that raiding party over to us. Anyhow, no one agrees with you about this. No, the share of someone who stays with the equipment will be the same as the share of someone who goes out and fights. They will share equally. It's been that way from that day on. He established it is a ruling for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the leaders of Judah who were his friends with a note. Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of Adonai. And he sent such gifts to those in Bethel, in Ramot, in Yatir, Aruer, Sifmot, in Eshtmoah, uh, in Rakal, in Yerek Me'eli, in the cities of the Keni, in Hormah, in Kor Ashan, in Atach, and in Hebron, and to all the places where David and his men had frequently visited. David had a crisis on his hands. The 400 men who had fought the Amalekites and rescued their Hebrew families and goods were not in a mood to share with the 200 who had stayed behind. Now, it wasn't all the 400 who felt this way. In fact, it was apparently just a handful of men who the Bible describes as Ra and Belial, evil and worthless, who made all this fuss. But you know, as any leader knows, insurrection usually begins with but one vocal dissenter. Nonetheless, it took all of David's natural, or God-given's probably more accurate, people skills to manage this pot- 
potentially explosive situation. Now while the result is given in just a sentence of scripture, no doubt there were some tense hours of careful negotiation, gentle persuasion, and soothing some hurt feelings all right, that was needed to avoid a serious split in his army. Now we shouldn't think either that all of David's men even carried an equal degree of loyalty and faithfulness towards David or the community. Sometimes we can get so carried away with the holiness and the loftiness of the scriptures that we forget that the characters involved in its pages were just everyday humans. So like any congregation, whether its basis is familial, political, or a church or a synagogue, there's no monolithic sentiment among all of David's men. The matter of assembling for war alongside the Philistines at Aphek had no doubt raised serious red flags among David's men and brought many of his army to the brink of parting company with that group, perhaps even removing themselves from under David's leadership. I mean, when they returned home to a devastated Zeklog, many of the doubters were openly suggesting that David be executed. And now when fully one-third of David's men refused to go any further in their pursuit of Amalek, regardless of their stated reason, there was a very visible line of division drawn. Well, in diffusing the tension and producing an undeniably God-centered and God-provided judgment in the matter, David proved his fitness to lead God's people as their earthly king. The wisdom of it, the firmness of conviction, the sense of community that it reestablished continued in the next move David made to share the loot taken from the Amalekites not only with the 200 who had stayed behind but also among many families within the tribe of Judah who had no idea that this action was even taking place. Well, his village gone and the Philistine kings having refused his services, David knew that he was going to have to mend some fences and reestablish loyalty with his Judean brethren. Thus, in verse 26, we see that upon his arriving home to their burnt-out headquarters in Zeklog, rather than keep all that had been captured from the Amalekites to, for himself and for his immediate people, he sent gifts, it says, to the elders of Judah. Now, the words, to his neighbors, are used to modify the phrase, elders of Judah. Sometimes we can get a little bit off track in understanding what the Bible means by neighbor. In, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, there are generally two different Hebrew words used that will, it, will both of them at times become transliterated into the English word neighbor. But they have two distinctly different senses to them. The first word is shachen, 
And it means neighbor in the sense of someone who resides nearby, maybe even next door. The second is rea. And it means neighbor not in the sense of proximity, but rather in the sense of relationship. Rea is referring to a friend or a companion, maybe a mate, a fellow countryman, or someone sharing some sort of recognized common bond. Shaken is impersonal, and it can refer to someone you don't even know. Rea is personal. It refers to somebody you do know, someone you care about. The word used in our passage referring to the elders of Judah is Rea. So David is using much wisdom and not just a little bit of political acumen in showing undeserved generosity to some fellow tribe members, but not all of them. So here we have a listing of whom it is that he honored. Like our president inviting an exclusive group to a banquet at the White House. There's always underlying meaning and purpose in each selection. There's at least as big a message to those who are excluded as to those who are included. This listing of verses 26 through 31 was leaders who first and foremost were those he felt would support him, welcome him back into Judah. They were also those whose leadership and influence would be vital in his ascension to the throne of Judah. Now, no no doubt, the many villages mentioned had been harmed by the Amalekites or the Philistines or maybe both. So the justification for awarding reparations to these Judean villages could be made, as David would have had to explain to his 600-man army just why he would give away all this plunder that they had risked their lives for. After all, weren't they in dire need as well? Their own homes and businesses were destroyed. They were essentially living among ruins. Now while we can and should credit David with a wonderful display of generosity and mercy, we need to temper that with a little bit of reality. It's always been so that political leaders buy the loyalty of others by giving away wealth that came from the efforts of their people whether or not those efforts were voluntary or not. Well, the final few words of this chapter tells us that some of the loot was also distributed to less important places in Judah, but apparently they had been aid to David at some point, and so he wanted to recognize them as well. Well, how godly this process of giving the spoils earned by his men to these village elders and to these other places actually was, I can't say. But it certainly would prove to be politically effective from an earthly perspective. Let's move on now to the final chapter of 1 Samuel, 
chapter 31. First Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistine, the Philistines pressed their attack on Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines, leaving their dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued and overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The fighting went hard against Saul. Then the archers overtook and wounded him so that he was in agony. Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword, run me through with it. Otherwise these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer refused. He was too frightened. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his own sword and died with him. The Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died that same day together. Where the, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the far side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. The following day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons lying dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. They stripped off his armor, sent these all over the territory of the Philistines to carry the news to the temples of their idols and to their people. Then they put his armor in the temple for the Ashtaroth, fastened his body to the wall of Beit Shan. And when the people living in Yabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the warriors set out traveling all night and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons off the wall at Bethshan and returned to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree in Yabesh and fasted for seven days. Here is the story of the inevitable end, end of King Saul, who died as violently as he lived. You know, there's no sense of gloating or even condemnation of this tragic king. Rather, what we read is almost sentimental, perhaps even reverent. The account of the battle scene is typically brief. And yet, one can almost close their eyes and picture it as it unfolded. The main confrontation was in the Jezreel Valley, a vast plain where countless battles had been fought over the centuries and many more would follow. This is the same place that our Messiah will lead us into holy war as our warrior king against the world's allied forces of evil. This is the place of Armageddon. Now let me point out that we find this same account nearly word for word in the book of First Chronicles 10 and with only the most minor variation that is really but added information. 
You know, these battles lasted for hours, sometimes days, almost always beginning at dawn. Darkness was a disadvantage to both sides. You you can't fight an enemy you can't see. All day long, the opposing forces of Saul and the Philistines waged desperate struggle for survival. But in time, the Philistines gained the upper hand. The Hebrews had to retreat. And they did so by scampering back up the slope into the area of their battle camp, the hills of Gilboa. And as the sun was getting low in the sky, the now energized Philistine warriors cornered the Israelites and the slaughter was on. Only darkness stilled the clanking of sword against shield. But it didn't stop the cries of anguish as the wounded on both sides lay dying. Who was mortally wounded? Who had survived? What would be the final toll? Who won? Only the rising of the morning sun would answer that question. Well, as the darkness gave way to light, the slain covered both sides of Mount Gilboa. As the narrative informs, King Saul and his three sons, Jonathan, Avinadav, and Malkishwa, were unable to escape. And they became the most valuable targets for the Philistines. The Bible spends no time to give us a blow-by-blow account or gory details of their deaths. Rather, we're only told that the archers had zeroed in on King Saul. At least one arrow found its mark, and Saul was mortally wounded and in great pain. Some ancient Bible manuscripts include that he was shot in the belly, in the area of the intestines. Well, knowing that his life was over, now his main concern was to alleviate his pain and, and to not fall into the hands of the enemy and be tortured. Our complete Jewish Bible says in verse 4 that Saul tells his personal armor bearer to end it for him now so that this uncircumcised enemy doesn't run him through. Actually, the original Hebrew says that Saul wants the armor bearer to kill him so that the enemy doesn't have their way with me. The idea is that Saul is worried that the Philistine soldiers might get to him before their kings do. If that happened, these soldiers, ordinary soldiers, might humiliate King Saul and disfigure him. Something that just isn't supposed to happen to kings. Saul's armor bearer rightly refused. The passage says though that it was because he was too frightened was what was the armor bearer frightened of was he concerned he was going to be punished or executed not at all no armor bearer would allow himself to live if the king he honored and was serving and protecting was killed the king dies in battle the armor bearer dies in battle that's the deal Now, the armor bearer feared God. 
Okay. Just as David maintained that he had no right to harm God's anointed king, Saul, so did most Israelites feel the same way, and the king's armor bearer chief among those. The armor bearer feared God's punishment upon him in a way that would affect him after his death. So he wasn't about to kill the king even in an act of mercy. The evidence of this is in verse 5, when the armor bearer refused to kill the king, Saul committed suicide, and the armor bearer did the same. You know, it's interesting to me that Saul even called upon his armor bearer to kill him. It's obvious from the narrative that Saul wasn't helpless. He was certainly able to bring about his own death. It wasn't unusual in battle, even I think in our modern days, for a hopelessly wounded soldier to ask a comrade to end his suffering. But, almost to a fault, it only occurred when that wounded soldier had no ability or means to end his own life. That certainly wasn't the case here. Verse 6 explains that there on Mount Gilboa, the reign of Israel's first king came to a gruesome end. There Saul, three of his sons, his armor bearer, and so says the complete Jewish Bible, all of his men died that day. Now this would give us the impression that all or almost all of Shaul's soldiers died that day. But First Chronicles adds some information to clarify. 1 Chronicles 10.6 says, Thus Saul, his three sons, and all his household died together. You see the difference? 1 Samuel 31 says all of his men, but in 1 Chronicles 10 it says all of his household. So we now understand that the phrase all of his men is meant as a figure of speech. It's a saying. Right, with the idea that his men are those men closest to him by blood and by status. The English word household is bait in Hebrew. It literally means house in the sense of those living together or joined together. Okay? It can mean relatives, but it also it can include, as it does here, the king's court. So it was Saul's family and all those of his royal court who were at the battle scene, who were being referred to as having died together that day. Well, many Israelite warriors fled the area and escaped. And it's interesting that we do not find Abner's name mentioned. Abner was Saul's highest military commander. One would have expected to see him standing shoulder to shoulder with the king. No explanation is offered. For some reason, Avner was not there. And apparently, it was understood that his absence was for legitimate, uh, legitimate reasons. The other name we might expect to find among the dead, but don't, is Ishbosheth, Saul's fourth son. He apparently escaped with Abner or wasn't present at all for some reason. We'll encounter, by the way, both of these men in later chapters. Well, the news of Israel's devastating defeat 
and their king's death raced across the central and northern Israel, even to the other side of the Jordan, where a large population of Israelites lived. It would have taken no more than a few hours. People panicked. To the north of the Jezreel, up to the Galilee Mountains, you see pointed out here on this map, even across to the Transjordan, and areas near the Jordan River, large populations deserted their cities and villages and fled into the countryside to hide. Even their walled fortress cities were abandoned and left to the Philistines to take without a fight. Well, essentially, we find that an entire new political landscape now faced Israel. Much of the lands of the northern tribal coalition of Israelites was lost to the Philistines. Those Hebrew tribes who had always sided with Saul and supported his rule were now firmly under Philistine control. But the southern tribes of Simeon and Judah remained largely unaffected because of this mountain range you see pointed out here that um, acted as a formidable separation and barrier between northern and southern Israel. In general, the Israelite territory of the Transjordan was also unaffected, except perhaps for a few isolated cities and towns. Well, as was customary, after the battle, the plunderers got busy searching and stripping the enemy dead. Now, much to their surprise and delight, there laid the king of Israel and his three sons. I mean, this victory was far more complete than the Philistines had any right to hope. I mean, to take everything of value from a corpse, from weapons to armor to jewelry, was not considered at all wrong, nor was it considered a mistreatment of the dead. It was the customary reward of the spoils of war to the victor. And to this day, in all armies, the practice is permitted to some level or another. But to add the final insult to Israel's defeat, the Philistines hacked off the heads of Saul and his sons. Now this typically just was not done to a king. Well, the heads and the armor of Saul and his sons were dispatched all over Philistia, where they were displayed in the uh, temples set before their gods. So, in the eyes of the Philistines, you see, their Philistine gods had defeated the one god of Israel, Jehovah. Now, ironically... The Philistines had no way of knowing that Jehovah long ago abandoned King Saul and he was now with David, the Nagid, the king in waiting. Saul had been on his own in this battle and basically the Lord merely used the Philistines to remove the anti-king and pave the way for God's anointed king. Yet David the one God was present with now, was living freely in Philistine territory and even being protected and subsidized 
by the Philistine king Achish. Well, verse 10 tells us that while Saul's skull and his armor were presented to the goddess Astarte, where we get the name Easter from, his body was taken to the city of Beit Shan and affixed to the city walls. Beit Shan was a well-known, long-established fortress city of the Canaanites. It had been built centuries earlier, fought over countless times due to its strategic location. Even the Egyptians occupied it for about a 200-year period beginning at a time not too long before the Exodus. It was located at the junction of the important east-west highway that connected the Jezreel Valley with Gilead and the main road that connected the north to the south of Canaan. Caravans and armies had used these routes since time immemorial and the importance of these highways never ceased being of the greatest value to merchants and conquerors and kings. Well, apparently, the Philistines controlled the Beit Shan fortress at the time of Saul's demise and they wanted to send a powerful message to everyone who passed by that Israel's time was over and that the era of Philistine hegemony in the region had begun. So they hung the headless bodies of Saul and his sons onto the city walls and allowed nature's scavengers to start to work on them. This could only have indicated the immense hatred and disrespect that the Philistines had for Saul and his northern tribal coalition. But the men of the Transjordanian city of Jabesh Gilead heard about this atrocity. They couldn't stand the thought. So they determined not to let this insult stand. Were these warriors of Jabesh Gilead so brave and pious that they would risk their own lives, that no sons of Israel would sway in the evening breeze for the amusement of their enemy? In a way, yes, but it was a lot more to it than that. Recall that there had been a strong connection between the tribe of Benjamin and the city-state of Jabesh-Gilead for many years prior to Saul's death. It began with the matter when Israel went to war against the tribe of Benjamin over the incident of the residents of the Benjamite city of Gibeah, Saul's hometown, raping a traveler's concubine to death. The act was so horrific that all the Israelite tribes got together and demanded that those responsible in Gibeah be brought to justice. But the tribe of Benjamin said they won't allow it. So the other 11 tribes of Israel went to war with Benjamin and nearly brought them to extinction. Not long after that, Israel attacked the Transjordanian city of Jabesh Gilead with the intent of exterminating every man, woman, and child. But the Israelites found 400 virgins of marrying age in the city and decided to spare them. Instead, 
they gave them to the very few surviving Benjamite males for wives as a means of regenerating their tribe. Thus the residents of Jabesh Gilead and the tribe of Benjamin, including Saul's clan, were bound by blood. And the existence of both Benjamin and Jabesh Gilead was only because of their intermarriage. Later, when Jabesh Gilead came under attack by the Ammonite king Nachash, Saul, from Gibeah, marched all night and with a contingent of Benjamite soldiers rescued them. So from this we can see this extremely close tie, deep affection that the residents of Jabesh Gilead had for King Saul. Well, the brave men of Jabesh Gilead marched all through the night to right this terrible wrong. Saul's reign hadn't wrung all truth, all gratitude and courage out of Israel. They crossed over the Jordan, they waited until the residents of Beit Shan were asleep behind the safety of their walls and then stealthily hoisted Saul and his son's bodies down. They carried the corpses all the way back to Jabesh Gilead for what to them must have been a proper and honorable burial. But we can't overlook a little bit of a mystery. As the narrative explains that the men of Jabesh burned the bodies and then took the remaining bones and buried them. This is totally uncustomary for Hebrew burial. The Torah forbids the burning of Hebrew bodies except for the most heinous criminals. Leviticus 20.14 If a man marries a woman and her mother, it's depravity. They're to be put to death by fire. Both he and they, so there will not be depravity among you. Leviticus 21.9 The daughter of a priest who profanes herself by prostitution profanes her, uh, profanes her father. She's to be put to death by fire. Some have already, some have speculated that do to the work of the scavenger birds and the natural decay that had already set in, that the men of Jabesh Gilead decided it was better not to bury them in such a condition. Well, this is an unwarranted stretch. Okay, this, this sort of issue with corpses discovered in all manner of disfigurement and stages of decomposition may not have been totally usual, but it wouldn't have been rare. Considering the pagan influences that had crept into the various Israelite tribes and clans, and that those Israelites who lived in the Transjordan especially seemed to readily adopt pagan ways, then very likely this was little more than a rather standard practice for Jabesh Gilead. Notice that they didn't completely burn the bodies with such heat as to destroy the bones. Rather, they would have placed them in an ossuary, a bone box, and buried them under the, tabern, uh, the terebinth tree in Jabesh Gilead, stated in the final verse. And we're told that because they were honoring the death of their king, the residents of Jabesh fasted for seven days. But this wasn't going to be the final resting place of Saul and his three sons, because we're going to read long way into 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 21, 
that at a later date, David would have this ossuary dug up and their bones moved to the territory of Benjamin and deposited in the tomb of their father, Kish. So as we exit the book of 1 Samuel, Israel is a rudderless ship. It's adrift in a sea of turmoil. The Philistines are in control. Israel is in dire need of a deliverer. The first king of Israel is dead. They have no king. The readers left with a sense of incompleteness and uncertainty amid a a vacuum of authority. Even though we know from the narrator that God has everything under control and David is in process of assuming the throne of Israel, we also know that the people of Israel have no idea of this. But as of this point in the narrative, even the reader of the Samuel scroll has many questions left unanswered. How and when will the Lord install David as king, especially since the Philistines now have such a firm grip on the largest segment of the Hebrew population in Hebrew land? These same sorts of issues would be raised for the coming Messiah. The reader will learn that a deliverer from David's line is coming. But how? When? Okay. Next week we'll begin 2 Samuel, the era of King David.